Welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Anjali Grochet. Now, today I have not just one, but two guests, and they're both from our very special corner of the Marvel Universe. That's right, podcasts. Both of these folks come from the audio fiction world. James T. Kim co-wrote Marvel's Wastelanders Doom, which was just announced this week. And Alejandra Lopez is a director of Marvel's Wolverine, La Larga Noche, the Spanish-language version of Marvel's Wolverine, The Long Night. I'll be talking to James first about his audio fiction background and about creating a series like this from scratch. And then we'll be talking to Alejandra, who had the task of interpreting and reimagining an existing series for a different language and culture. James Kim is a Korean-American journalist, audio producer, and writer who started off in the national public radio world. That's right, NPR. But his work co-writing Marvel's Wastelanders Doom wasn't his first audio fiction work. He actually wrote and produced the very personal but technically fictional podcast Moonface in 2019. The main character, Paul, like James himself, is trying to come out as gay to his mom when they don't speak the same language. James's parents came to the U.S. from Korea in the 1980s, and they were so committed to James's assimilation that he really focused on learning English and losing his accent, and in the process, lost his ability to speak the Korean language. We get into all that and so much more in my conversation with James. I am so excited to have you on the show, James. You have done some incredible work. Like, you've been in podcasts for what? I mean, I made my first one in 2011. So I've been in, I've been doing it for a while now. I feel like a dinosaur in this industry. You Obviously, you're a storyteller. Mm-hmm. What was it about podcasts that seemed like the right medium for telling your stories? You know, I've always been a person who... I had trouble with language, actually. So I grew up speaking Korean. And then when it came time to when I was five to go to kindergarten, my parents were just like, OK, you're just going to learn English and it's full on immersion. Just don't speak Korean. We're not going to speak Korean in the house. My mom, you know, she actually speaks Korean and doesn't speak English. And and so it was kind of challenging, right, where I'm like trying to learn this language and trying to lose another and in the process, I felt like I was not good at either Korean and English for a long time. So it's kind of weird that I've like now turned into somebody who is like writing audio fiction. And, and a lot of my work is through writing because I've always viewed my storytelling and the strengths is, is using sound because of my language barrier. And because I felt so insecure about my language, um, the way I loved to communicate was through like making mixtapes for people or just hearing and being like an introverted person and just listening to people, but never like interjecting or, or joining in on the conversation. So that's been my mode. And, you know, I thought I was going to be like a documentary filmmaker. But when it came to discovering audio, like I didn't know what NPR was or anything like it. Like my parents didn't, you know, they're listening to Korean radio. I'm listening to Kiss FM back in the day. And then I listened to emo music. So I just like <laughs> just didn't know what public radio was. But when someone introduced it to me and there was like an internship that was available, 
once I started making stories and audio, I started to realize like my love of music and my love of sound and telling stories through that medium, combining it with just talking to people and interviewing them and, and putting that together into one thing. It, it felt like a documentary to me, to my ears. It just clicked. I was like, oh my gosh, like all the strengths that I felt like I had, especially gravitating towards sound, this felt like the medium for me. And then somehow I jumped the shark of from documentary to fiction and, <laughs> and here I am. And here you are. Well, and I mean, there's a place where documentary and fiction can meet. You also jumped from telling other people's stories and fictional stories to being inspired by your own story yeah. you wrote, but then you also produced your own fictional podcast. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Moonface. Yeah, I love how you vocally put fictional in quotations, you know, just the way you said it, because <laughs> it is... It is kind of autobiographical. And um, the rule that I learned when I started off in, in public radio and the rule that they would teach you is like, never make the story about you. It's always like that shows bias. You're not being objective. So you have to be about other people. And so that was ingrained in my mind for the longest time. And when it came to fiction, what was so liberating is like, I don't need to follow any of those rules. And and the whole reason I, I dove in was because, you know, I was an entertainment journalist and I was just tasked to do a lot of the reporting about diversity in entertainment. This was like 2014 or 15. And when Oscar So White just started, you know, trending. And Shout out to April Rain for Oscar So White. Yeah. And so did a lot of stories. But the stories I was hearing was that I was talking to really talented people, but people who are saying that there's just not a lot of opportunities in their medium of, of film and television because they're like, the, the budgets are too high for the stories that we want to tell because Hollywood is saying that, hey, are you sure that this many people want to consume your story and be immersed in your story? And I was looking at audio and the landscape there was there's people making audio fiction. Some of the, the people who actually made audio fiction for Marvel, like Paul Bay and Lauren Shippen. And I was like, okay, there's this group coming out and they're, they're doing something. And I'm like, well, I want to do something too, because I'm getting kind of tired of these rules that are, are being put in public radio that you couldn't do a lot of sound design or score and then also tell stories that we can personally connect to. That's when I decided, all right, I'm going to dive in and do audio fiction and tell my own story. And because of my whole journey of, of not being comfortable with my writing, I was like, the thing that I feel most comfortable writing is something that I know very deeply and closely, which was my experience of coming out to my mom and how it was a difficult one because we didn't speak the same language. She spoke Korean, I spoke English, and I was like, how am I going to tell this to her and communicate this? And with that language barrier, we didn't talk at all. Like the extent of our conversation was, how's your day? What do you want to eat? And then afterwards, she would just ask, like, what did you think? And that was it. Like, that's just all we talked about, those three things. So to then lay a really heavy discussion <laughs> when you've never had one before was really daunting. So I thought there was something there. And I also thought with audio, you know, audio fiction, you can set your story anywhere you want. If you set it in a battlefield where there's aliens fighting demons, or you set it in a home where two people are fighting over what TV show to watch, those two scenes cost exactly the same because you don't need to pay for locations. You can put all that sound design in post. Like, but for me, what I was drawn to about audio was this idea of like, what is a story that can only be told in audio or maybe is the best version of that story is told in audio. And 
this story, Moonface, was all about language. And to me, that's all about listening because that's all I've been doing all my life. That's incredible. And it's so interesting to me because you keep talking about like the strength in writing and this idea of how that was like that place where you, you know, you didn't feel as comfortable. I do want to shout out the fact that the other person we're talking to is Alejandro Lopez, who directed the Spanish language podcast, Marvel's Wolverine, La Larga Noche. But this one you're literally talking about, my mother only speaks Korean. Like there's, yeah. there's like meh, uh, there's no translation. Um, you know how did how did you make that choice? Yeah, it was really inspired again by like the things that I was pushing up against in public radio, right? It, like one of the big things was in public radio, they were like, because it's audio and we don't have visuals, you really have to handhold the audience. You really like when you're telling an audio story, you got to let them know like what's happening. You even have to like let them know what you're thinking. For me, it felt a bit overbearing. And I should step back and say why it felt overbearing. You know, my whole life when I was struggling with trying to grasp English, I remember like when I would have interactions outside of school, I'd go to the supermarket with my mom and the way people would talk to us because we weren't really proficient in that language, English. It was like overly communicating and thinking that we couldn't grasp very simple things just because the language barrier was there. So there's a lot of talking down. And I understood why, you know, we're trying to find a common ground, but it felt a bit demoralizing that it almost felt that we were just kind of too stupid almost to, to grasp these simple concepts of like, if there's a coupon that's expired and my mom's trying to use it and, and you know, the way that they would talk to my mom about that. And so it's weird because going into public radio, I almost equated those experiences of a kid of like over explaining, you know, handholding. It just kind of triggered those memories of me as a child. And so... When I made Moonface, I just was like, I want to trust the audience more that they're going to grasp these things. And the thing that you're talking about, where it's just like the idea that there's a lot of Korean in the show. And so the main character, Paul, is talking to his, his mom and Paul is speaking in English and trying to understand his mom who's speaking solely in Korean. And we're not translating that at all. My whole hope was I think that the audience will understand what's happening here because I want to put them in Paul's shoes. Like how much he understands and how much he doesn't understand, I want the audience to feel that because that to me feels like fully immersed in that story, like in his experience. And it was to give the audience trust that I'm like, I know I'm not going to handhold you here, but I feel like you're going to get this. You're going to understand this. And I, I want to give you a bit more trust and credit that you'll you'll get what I'm trying to do here without like me having to explain every step. And I think that's really incredible because that's that is such... It invokes so much emotion, right? So I, I kind of also want to talk about your work for Marvel, right? So you're actually co-writing Marvel's Wastelanders, Doom. How did you get into Marvel? Because I got to know how cool it was. Like <laughs> the first chance you get to write a Marvel character, you're writing Victor Von Doom. Yeah, it was so daunting and scary. Yeah, my entry point into Marvel was, I feel like with a lot of people was Spider-Man. I would read Spider-Man comics as a kid because again, like books were a bit daunting because of the language and things like it. Comics for me was like, you had the visuals you could see in the language was written so colloquially, you know, and, and you can just like understand everything on the page. And so Spider-Man was that I was just drawn to Spider-Man because it was this coming of age tale. Like now having this huge responsibility and weight, the stakes always felt so high. I mean, they were 
incredibly high for Peter Parker, but you know, he's dealing with like high school stuff and then also having to save the world. And there's something about it for me that just trying to grasp so much and still trying to find yourself that I just loved about Spider-Man. But it actually wasn't until I met my partner, Tony, where he, the comics that reintroduced me to Marvel was strangely um, She-Hulk. <laughs> Cause yes. he was like, yeah. So he was like, okay, She-Hulk is just fun. If you want something to just forget about like all the problems in the world, read She-Hulk. It's just like every single issue is just like a blast, you know? And it's like, there's just like a, a suspension of disbelief in a really fun way that made me go, oh, this is so much fun, you know? Then you just start diving in and more of the world and, and, you know, you get to the Old Man Logan series and you're like, Jesus Christ, this, like, it's so literary and amazing and incredible. Because I, I straight up was reading the Old Man Logan series and, and then they hit me up. During pandemic, I just went back and I, I was reading actually a lot of graphic novels. But to me, the Old Man Logan series is just like, that felt like gritty, dark, artistic, poetic. So Marvel hits you up and they had this concept where they're like, yeah, it's set in this dystopian future and it's very gritty and grounded in reality. I'm like, I'm reading that right now. Like, this is so freaking cool. So yeah, that's how it all came together. I love it. I mean, so Moonface is something that comes from very personal experience. It is something that you like. Yeah. This is you're being handed a character, right? Like yeah. you're now co-writing the series, which is it lives inside of a world. It's got other shows that connect with it. Was it a different experience than the other fiction audio you've kind of written and produced before? Because now you're working with Doom. Oh, yeah. I would say that felt a lot more stakes, <laughs> a lot more anxiety writing something because Doom, I feel like, is just one of the ultimate baddies of the Marvel Universe. And, you know, there hasn't been a lot of versions of Doom outside of the comic books. I mean, there has, but nothing that has lasted. And the stakes always felt incredibly high, <laughs> you know, and his imagery of just the mask, I feel like has become such a cultural image of sorts too, maybe because I listened to MF Doom too. So it's just, you know, I'm always seeing that mask as well. And, and like it presented new challenges because for the first time I was collaborating with another writer, Mark Wade. And so that added even more pressure because I'm like, God, Mark is a legend in, in the Marvel universe. And there was that, but outside of the fear stuff, just more of the, the writing these existing characters who come with such a history, a well of history, it was very fun to just dive into, like, I didn't have to do the work of creating like these character bios of like, what is their, their origin story? What is their motive? Like that was there in the pages. Like, and Mark has written some of those comics that we, we pulled from as well. And, um, Obviously, this is a, a new world for them. So we did do that character building, but I need to just understand where these characters are coming from. And if I can connect with that and their motives, like it's just going to be so much easier for me to write it. I, too, have Mark Wade comic books on my shelf. You know, <laughs> you got to collaborate with like a legend. Like, yeah. what was that like? When there's someone who is as accomplished as Mark, I don't know, you kind of build that person up. He seems just like of a different plane. <laughs> and so what we ended up doing is we would have semi-regular calls where I would hit up Mark because um, Mark at the time was also working on something else and we had to meld their brains a bit. But the call was just really me asking Mark 
on just like history about these characters or where they kind of go or some of these nuggets that I just couldn't find online and that Mark has had sitting in his brain. Like one thing was Dr. Doom's voice. Mark just had such a clear idea of how that person should sound like. And that was just so enlightening for me because for him, he was just in general, like Doom is just, you know, he thinks everyone is just idiots. He just looks so lowly on everybody. And the way he talks, you know, he talks like the scholarly person really to like to show his class through language, you know, show that he's elevated the way that he uses language. Every word he he respects the written and verbal word so much that every word choice is just important for him. And so he just speaks with this vibrato. And that, that's just something that for me, you can't really get out at the page. You know, you, you had to talk to the person who has like written these characters. You know, Mark is just somebody who has this just vast knowledge and experience in some of the most iconic characters, but he's also just so humble. And you could just ask him the dumbest question. <laughs> and, and he's not like Victor Von Doom. He won't look at you and go, oh God, you imbecile. <laughs> Not that I thought he would be like that. But he was just, he, he just was so willing to help. And that to me made just the process of writing this, this script a lot more fun and easier too. I love that. So I got to ask, like, how much research into Dr. Doom did you really have to do? Like, what did that look like? Yeah. You know, I got to give props to MR Daniel. So MR was the producer on the Wastelander series. I for love me. MR. MR is amazing. Me and them go way back. And MR created this list of like, okay, these are kind of the series of events are going to be happening in this show and this season. And at this page and at this issue, you should read that because that's going to be a reference point to this. And I was like, holy crap. So like it was so specific. The amount of research, there was a lot on top of all of that and, and the comics I just myself just was like, I need to dig in. And I'm not going to lie. I went to the wiki fandom pages and read a lot from there. It was incredibly resourceful. But then also just like the Fantastic Four, the anime series as well, just watching whatever I could just to see like different depictions and storylines. And, you know, even though this was set in its own universe, but like I just still wanted to know as much as possible. I think that was like my journalist brain tapping in. Being like, all right, I cannot write a character unless I know everything. <laughs> I don't know if I got there, but there was a lot of stuff. To dive oh my into. god, I feel like you're reading my soul. <laughs> um, but it's that insatiable need to be authentic, right? And even when you're dealing with this Wastelanders universe, even though it's an alternate universe, you do want to honor these characters. So for those who may not be in the know, can you explain what is the Wastelanders universe and what has happened? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of similar to the Old Man Logan series, there is kind of this catastrophic moment that happens for all the heroes of the Marvel universe, which is V-Day. And that's the day that the villains won. They had this huge plan to kind of sneak attack all of these heroes and essentially take over. And they, they, you know, once V-Day happened, each villain started to take over different sectors of the United States and really carved out a new map, a new world. 
And for Victor Von Doom, that was kind of located more in like the Midwest area. And we had uh, the Doom Woods, you know, where he was supposedly supposed to reign. But for even um, Victor Von Doom during V-Day, he was doing his own thing, you know. And this was kind of mentioned in, in the Star-Lord series where he was going after Hulk. And uh, unfortunately, Hulk bested Victor Von Doom. And Victor Von Doom ended up becoming trapped in this prison. And when he emerges, it's decades later. And the villains have now, they've taken over. They're doing their own thing. Every territory is just completely different. Victor emerges from this world being like, what happened? I was supposed to be one of these kings. I was a villain who was supposed to be taking over. Now I'm not, you know, and you find him at the lowest point. And um, with Valeria Richards, you know, she was one of the heroes who kind of snuck away, played quiet. She saw what happened. And without giving any spoilers, there's a reason why Valeria Richards is going solo. And she also is on this very lonely journey, too. And where we find her, after the whole world has turned around, she's still trying to grasp for the past, you know? She's this collector of artifacts. She wants to collect these items of the old superheroes and, and the villains and, and hold them dear for her own reasons. But she's yearning for this kind of past life, too, because the world has completely changed and the landscape has completely changed where you have Red Skull taking over one of these areas. But then also you have all these other villains down south just controlling all these places. And in this series, out of any of the other series that have come out on the Wastelanders, you're really going to get a sense of what has happened on that global scale of this new world when villains have taken over because we're going to go pretty much all across the world and map with uh, Victor Von Doom and Valeria Richards. And, and you really get to get a sense of, of this new world. So how do you even begin to come up with this story? Like what, what were your inspirations and why did you feel like you wanted to take the story in this direction? You know, one thing it was, because I'm not going to lie, it was incredibly daunting hearing the premise. I was like, what? They're going to traverse the, every single area of this new um, world post V-Day. And, you know, it's uh, going to be Valeria Richards and, and Dr. Doom. And, and for me, I've been always used to just writing a single perspective. This is two characters now and two different journeys that they're going across. And if it weren't for Mark Wade you know, who initially wrote the initial outline, he created this bones of, of what the story should be, where they're actually going. And what really was easy for me to grasp was at the end, what, what do these characters want? What are they actually both after? Because they both have different intentions. They both have like different needs of what they think the world should look like. But at the end of the day, these two characters want the same thing. They are just going about it in two completely different ways. And that to me was like my anchor for this show, because without getting too much details, like at the time during pandemic, I'll be honest, like I'm pretty sure everyone's emotions were high. We are all maybe in our feelings a little too much. <laughs> and in that process, what was going on in my personal life was, you know, there's a lot of relationships that were collapsing for me, you know, and, and it was because everything felt like such high stakes. And there was a lot of things where people wanted this, like, you know, you'd work on projects and people want the same thing, but they go about it in different ways. And quite honestly, a lot of that personal drama that happened, I strangely was starting to tap into it with this show. And I was like, wait a minute, 
these two people, they're just so touchy feely. Everything is high stakes to them because they're, it is this like father daughter relationship and everything is just tender because they're, they're meeting each other for the first time in decades. And so everything is like walking on eggshells with them. And I was like, I know those feelings. Like I'm going through that now. <laughs> and and it was like a weird, like fun and also hard thing to write. But because it was just centered on on their dynamic, whatever journey that we went through and whatever worlds that they traversed, um, that was all for me just kind of adding to this dynamic of these two people that I was just so familiar with. I love it. Okay, so obviously this is being written during the pandemic. Did you have a chance to listen in on the recordings? Were there things that once your talent got there and really started reading through, you felt like you wanted to tweak and make stronger? Like, how did that process work? Yeah, I got to give so much props to our director, Jade. Jade King Carroll, right? The yeah, brilliant yeah. woman who directed this series. Yeah, Jade directed the entirety of this series. And she actually was brought on while we're in the middle phases of writing. And one thing that she was so adamant about, she was just like, I just need to know these characters a bit more. And, and she really pushed for us to actually meet me, Mark and Jay to just talk about these characters and what they're going through and really understand their motives and, and why they're doing the things that they're doing and what's pushing them forward. So Jade actually provided so much input into the story before she even started directing that I felt like I was kind of on the same wavelength as her once we started yeah. going into the recording process. And once the recordings happened, I, I sat in on a couple of them. But at that point, because Jade came in and, and really started to understand these characters and we we're doing this dance of working with each other and, and really getting inspired by each other, by the time it was set to record, it felt like, you know, every direction that she was giving, I'm like, yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. And it helps, too, because I feel like the stories that she tells are very similar to the stories I tell. They're all rooted in these moments that are very tender, but they're rooted in the people. The stories feel small, but the emotions are really big. And so just sitting in and, and watching Jade do her work, especially with these actors, like the one thing that I loved was she allowed everyone to kind of be curious because there are some things on the page where you write it in the page and you you have a version of it in your mind and then you send it off to the director and you're just hoping that they also have the same version too when they're directing these actors. But what I liked is that it was just a very collaborative experience of, you know, Jade being incredibly open to the the words on the page, but then asking, well, you know, with these actors, like, you know, this is what's going on here. Does that feel natural to you? Maybe we should push it in this direction. And it just was a very collaborative experience throughout the entirety of it, which was great. I love it. Okay, so you've given us a little bit of a tease on the tone and the emotion. And for those who are going to be listening to Marvel's Wastelanders, Doom, what should they expect? Without giving any spoilers out, what is this journey? Tell us the yeah. things. Oh, man, it's so funny. We've been so cryptic and walking around like all the specific details. But the funny thing is that that's exactly what happens in the show <laughs> where where these two characters, when Valeria and Victor both meet up, they're both really smart people and they know that they both need each other to go on this journey to find something and they both want the same thing. And they're both walking around on eggshells and not really revealing each other's plans and, and searching for this forbidden item. Ultimately, you're just wondering, oh, gosh, what happens when they get it? Because they both have different ideas of what they want to do with this item. And you're kind of nervous about what how it's going to play out because, it, you know, it can go 
million different ways. And then you'll just end up finding out what happens next. Now I'm like, what? What is this item? (laughs) And in his head, he is going... Well, you're just going to have to listen to the series, Angelique, aren't you? Well, you know what? Thank you. Like, seriously, I'm so excited to listen to the show. Thank you so much for coming on Marvel's Voices. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Angelique. This is great. Okay. I could have talked to James for another hour. For those who are interested, which is clearly all of you, because it sounds amazing, the first two episodes of Marvel's Wastelanders Doom are out now exclusively on the SiriusXM app and Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. Plus, the first episode can be found wherever you get your podcast. All right, so James co-wrote Marvel's Wastelanders Doom alongside Mark Wade, using the comics and other Wastelander series as inspiration. But what happens when the fiction podcast you're making already exists? Kinda. Well, I had a chance to talk to Alejandra Lopez about that very thing. She is the director behind Marvel's Wolverine La Larga Noche. La Larga Noche is the Spanish-language version of Marvel's Wolverine The Long Night. But it's not as simple as just translating the English words into Spanish. It's more of a reinterpretation or a reimagining than a word-for-word translation. Here's my conversation with Alejandra. Alejandra Lopez, how's it going? Gracias, Angelique. I'm great. Good morning. How are you? Oh, you know what? I'm fantastic. It's wild uh, because we get the benefit of some of the stuff we do. We can do this remotely, right? Like we can mm-hmm. we can see each other's faces, and you like you got to work on a podcast about Wolverine. You know, you had this very unique opportunity to translate our first fiction podcast into Spanish. Talk to me a little bit about your background, but also you know what excited you about this project i believe this project came at a really good time being early on in my career what i've done is i've been in staffed right in writer's room and done short films i haven't really directed television or a feature yet so then 2020 happened which gave us a space that you're mentioning earlier to do stuff remote so i think in 2020 podcast where it was beginning to be a bigger thing than people thought. And it was something that could be done remotely in a, in a very safe way, right? And the whole interview process was, was kind of funny. I got like this invitation. It only said Spanish-speaking podcast. And I'm like, well, I am a Spanish speaker. I haven't done podcasts before, but it shouldn't really be that hard. It's just everything else but a camera, right? <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> But again, didn't say Marvel, didn't say anything. So here I am, 2020, with a Zoom meeting with a producer in my pajamas. You know, messy bun, no makeup. I was in Puerto Rico. I'm here in LA right now, but I went to Puerto Rico back in 2020. Anyway, it was great. It was super relaxing. I wasn't stressed at all. And then I get an email. I get invited to a second interview. And that's when I see in the email, like, jilldubuff at marvel.com. And I'm like, como? What? Wait, what? You know, hold a minute. So I changed my pajamas. I actually, <laughs> I actually look more presentable. 
But honestly, what I think that really got me the job was the fact that when she asked me, so what do you think about Marvel Studios and Marvel Entertainment? I'm like, um, I haven't really seen much of your stuff. <laughs> and then I'm, I was like, but what that means is that I will present to you with a new vision of Wolverine since I haven't seen any of the movies. You know, second of all, I will treat this superhero as a human being with flaws, which is what you and I are. And third, because I might not consider myself a fan, I'm just going to come in, work, and give you the product that you need. You know, and they were like, interesting. Um, and also, I speak Spanish, so I think we will have a lot of fun. And then I got a third email. Hey, you got the job. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Or the beginning, right? Because or the beginning. The other thing that I think was unique about this project is that you did walk in with a whole full English version. Correct. And so you kind of walk in with this piece that was written by Benjamin Percy and recorded as the first season of the scripted podcast. How did you change your approach to telling the story in that way? So... The first thing I did was I listened to the English podcast, which was great. And then for me as a filmmaker as well, it was very important to know the intention of the writer. So the first thing I asked was to meet Benjamin. And I think he's so talented. He sent me, he was so kind enough to send me the Bible of, of the show. And it was like a 60 page document. It was like intense. You know, I did, I did my fair homework and then I know there's multiple versions of Wolverine. So I want, I wanted to be, like I mentioned, clear with the writer what was what is the Wolverine that we were getting to know? What were the themes he was looking for in the story? You know, and all that stuff. So once I, I mean, I read a lot about Wolverine, but I didn't see the movies because I didn't, I didn't want to give notes to the actors as something that already existed. You know, I went to acting school, not film school. So when I did Romeo and Juliet, like I didn't see the little DiCaprio movie because I wanted to do a Juliet that was fresh and new. That's my approach as the director. I, I like to create with the actor on the moment. You know, when we've talked about it a couple times on Marvel's Voices, there are literal scientific limitations to what you can do when it is just audio mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of the human limitations with hearing, mm -hmm. right? And so how did you approach the project once, you know, that visual is pulled back? The only background that I have done, I would say sound-wise, is that when I was in acting school, we don't have like a film school in Puerto Rico, so... What my minor was in acting, then my major was called audiovisual communications. I was the only one in the drama department that knew how to edit, meaning I was the one that sound designed all the plays. That was the first time I worked just with sound. I did all the sound effects for the plays and I pick, you know, the right tracks for certain moments. So I already knew a little bit how things worked. And obviously, as an actress, which again, I'm, I'm grateful that I actually went to acting school and not film school because it, it makes me the writer and director that I am. I understood how pauses also, you know, silence is also important, how you breathe delivers certain emotions, how certain sound effects can help move forward a plot. And for me, I don't like to spoon feed my audience. So if there's an emotion, I let it stay. But then I introduce music when I feel certain elements are missing to help me push that story or emotion forward. That being said, I did tell Marvel that the Spanish podcast was going to be longer because we, in, in the Spanish language, we savor more. The Spanish language needs to breathe. You know, we take time delivering the words. So just off the bat, it's not they're not going to be half an hour episodes. 
That brings up a good segue, right? Because it's not just word translation, Mm -hmm. because words don't always directly translate. But it is also cultural translation. And this idea of what do you bring, not just what Benjamin wrote, Mm -hmm. but like, what do you bring to convey what's on the page, right? And so for you... How close did you want to stay to the source material and how much did you want to kind of make it culturally accurate so that the translation really translated? Well, in Hollywood, the neutral Spanish is known as the Mexican Spanish. So that I knew right off the bat. But as a Puerto Rican, there are certain words that it's not in the Mexican Spanish, but it is in the Puerto Rican Spanish. We did hire a PA. Her name is Rome. She's actually Mexican. And then because Rome is Mexican, that's where we put certain words. Like, for example, in Puerto Rico, a bus, we say guagua. You know, but but in Mexico, I think it's bus. So it was a very diligent, meticulous work. And then the third thing that I do have to say is because I'm all about authenticity and being natural. If the actors felt the line wasn't delivered correctly, Marvel was kind enough to let us be open for the actors to record whatever they feel comfortable with. Mm. So I love this because for a lot of folks, we hear translation, right? And we think about captions or we think about subtitles Mm -hmm. or dubs, right? Because so many of us are used to this visual, but this really isn't just a translation. It is its own piece. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And to be honest, I knew I had a, a bigger ship on my shoulder because the English version was pre-pandemic. I was shooting in pandemic time, so we were supposed to do everything remotely. And I told Marvel, like, just to think the English version, they were all in one room, all together, listening and interacting. The fact that every single actor in the Spanish class was going to be so farther away and with technical difficulties, I'm like, again, Marvel was just so great and supportive. They're like, why don't we do half and half? Like, why don't we just have the agents? The federal agents, Agent Pierce and Agent Marshalls, right? Mm -hmm. The lead characters in the show? Correct. Because I thought they are the backbone of the podcast. So at least if they're in the same space, listening and interacting to each other, then we actually had the third actor join us remotely. So it was like a hybrid podcast in that way, but I did feel it helped having at least me with the main characters in a space and then just bringing in remotely of the other characters. Now, I kind of want to switch to casting. Like, Mm -hmm. how much were they able to bring to the reinterpretation of the podcast? My main actors, Guillermo, is actually Venezuelan. But as a great actor himself, well, he's able to make accents, right? And then Brigitte, she's actually a Cuban-Mexican from Miami. But they were both here in L.A., which is very important for me. So we could actually, again, we did like, I think we did like eight hours a day, two weeks just to record the agents. And then Wolverine was the one and only Joaquin Cosio. He was in Mexico City. And I do believe the rest of the cast was mostly Mexican. So, yeah, like we just again, we had multiple takes. And at the end, we then we decide if we stick to the line in the script or if we feel better with the new delivery. They did. But yeah, Carla Hul was her casting director, which I, you know, I, I did grow up watching all the stuff she's casted. So that was pretty cool working with her. I enjoy it as an actress myself. Like it's it's so fun. I love it. And the thing that I also love about this is the Marvel's Voices theme for this season. This is idea of how people from other cultures and other backgrounds make our stories richer, right? They Mm -hmm. bring those influences in. And so can you talk to us a little bit about 
the process of the sound design, the process of being able to direct these. Well, the sound design was already made. It was already done because we did the same one from the English version. Great. But they were able to actually copy-paste the tracks. Oh, so they were able to transfer the layers of the tracks that already existed from the original Correct. So we only needed to add the voices of the actors. But with the matching, they would have to actually do an extra layer of sound engineering to be able to match the new tracks because there is those directing points that you had where you let the emotions sit, where you allow them. Exactly. So they had to then push or pull or take or add. Mm. But the backbone was there. So while we were recording, I already marked the takes I wanted. So at least that process was quicker. I just knew which one I wanted. But it took us some time to, again, shift and move everything around. Because it really is an art, right? I just look at them like they're magicians, honestly. Oh, yeah. That includes the producers of this show. Shout out to Isabel Robertson and Cara McGurk, <laughs> who will have to edit me later. So seriously, stepping into this project, you seem like you had so much fun. What were you hoping to communicate to the Spanish-speaking audience of Marvel fans, right? Because there's a lot of intent you put in this. There's a lot of care you put in this to ensure that it culturally translated. Like, they understood it. They didn't just hear it, but they really understood the story. Well, I think I'm just, first of all, I'm I'm very grateful to the folks at Marvel Entertainment to even think of translating this podcast and hiring me as their captain. And to answer your question, I think how amazing for these adults and kids to listen to their favorite superhero for the first time in the language that they natively speak. How cool is it to see a Wolverine that looks like them, you know, that I'm pretty sure eats, you know, the same thing they do. Again, because it is a podcast, just to hear the same language that they speak for such a big company, I only hope to inspire might be the word you know because again there is a huge market out there because sometimes Hollywood is afraid of doing things in different language but I mean guys you are Hollywood it is okay you know for me to direct the Spanish-speaking Wolverine podcast was for Marvel Entertainment was it was also an, an honor and a big responsibility again I only hope to inspire women and little girls out there to achieve their dreams I mean, it is a lot of hard work, of course. But if you have confidence in yourself and in your ability, the world is your oyster. Are you crying? No, I'm just very oh. happy. That just makes <laughs> me so happy. Yeah. I'm just done. Okay. This, thank you so much. Like, thank you for all the work you did on this. And thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to then check it out afterwards. Thanks again to Alejandra and James for coming on the show. If you didn't learn something about podcasts, just rewind it. Listen to this again. I absolutely love talking about fiction podcasts. Again, make sure you follow Marvel's Wastelanders Doom wherever you get your podcasts or listen to episode one now exclusively on the SiriusXM app or Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. Before we go, today's Stormbreaker Spotlight is the brilliant artist behind the latest Black Widow run, Elena Casagrande. I am Elena Casagrande. 
and I'm uh, living in Italy, close to Rome, in a very small town. My father is a comic book reader from a very long time, and uh, I grew up watching him always have, having a comic book in, in his hands. Um, so when I, I was very, very little, like uh, three or four years old, I liked to simulate him taking a comic book and taking my reading because I wasn't able to read. Uh, we in Italy, we have the Disney comic book about Mickey Mouse. We used to call him Topolino. So my mother always uh, bought me Topolino and other Italian comic books. And uh, I started to appreciate the media because it was funny to see how I was able, without reading, to understand the stories. But uh, as soon as I uh, was able to buy with my own money, I started to, to read manga. As soon as I uh, was able to take a pen in my hand, my mother was happy to give it to me. And uh, she was good uh, in art too. In every class I've been, I was the one who can draw. <laughs> First influences came from uh, big masters of the Italian comic industries, because when uh, I was a kid and uh, my mother bought me the comic book at uh, the newsstands, uh, they used to do a little book about uh, the big literature cult of Italian history. There, I found uh, masters like uh, Gianni De Luca, Sergio Toppi, and others. I take uh, advantages also from uh, TV series and cinema. One time, when uh, I was attending at the comic school, a teacher of mine said me that uh, the Italian artists uh, were good because uh, we grew into art. We used to live uh, surrounding by art. But being close to Rome, let me see the most beautiful things we have here in Italy, I think. I received an email from uh, Ricky Burton. <laughs> he had something for me, and he was asking, uh, what are you going to do in the next two years? Are you interested to be with us? <laughs> because uh, I'm happy to, to tell you that we would like to have you in the next Thornbreaking class. It's really satisfying and give me a little... I'm proud. <laughs> Can I say? <laughs> 
next week on Marvel's Voices, we have a huge treat. I am going to be joining you in the audience again, and we'll be listening together as my friend, writer, host, just all-around awesome nerd, Kara Mahorn, a.k.a. The Blurred Girl, talks to artist and writer Junie Ba about how he was first introduced to comics in Senegal, how he developed his love of comics and storytelling, and a little bit about how the comic industry has begun to flourish in West Africa. You're not going to want to miss it. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Cara McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duball. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina.